Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. February 4th, 2018. Sean's older brother, Josh, and his girlfriend, Caitlin, are throwing a Super Bowl party. They decide to invite Sean. New England kicking off. They won the toss. They have deferred. Tom Brady over on the sideline. Foles will The house right was alive with friends and family and food and drinks. The Philadelphia Eagles were playing the Patriots. And although this is Pittsburgh Steelers territory, Josh is an Eagles fan, excited to watch them take on Tom Brady. For Sean, it was a rare moment of normalcy. He tried his best to soak it in. I know that was hard for him, being around people and then the drinking, but he was also, like, super excited. Like, he was talking with everybody. But at one point during the party, Josh looked around and noticed that Sean had vanished. I noticed he wasn't down here, and and I thought maybe he was doing something. So I went upstairs, and he was up there laying down, you know. I was like, hey, what's wrong? You know, what's going on? I'm like, do you want to leave? Like, he's like, no, 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 I want to be here. Nothing's wrong. I just just need to take a break, you know, because there was a lot of people loud. And part of that was, like, on me, and it was hard because... I wanted my brother there, but I, I didn't think about it, you know. And he was perfectly fine, and he was still happy, you know, gave me a hug. He's like, no, I'll be down in a little bit. And he did, and he was fine. Um, you know, but he didn't drink or do anything like that, but he just hung out, you know, and he, he was, was talking. helping me in the kitchen. Yeah, he was talking to some people, you know, my friends were talking to him and stuff. But he was like, I had him help me in the kitchen because I was like, well, I'll give him some jobs to like, just to make him feel involved. I mean, I could see that the way that, that, he, that he felt in certain situations, he didn't want to go around certain people or be in a certain area just because he felt he'd never said it but i mean i could tell that he just felt embarrassed or beneath or you know something like that that people were judging him yeah and like didn't try to understand him the learning curve was steep for sean but he wasn't alone everyone in the family was going through their own version of re-entry not knowing exactly what sean needed there was a lot of tiptoeing and best guessing and worry The party was only a few weeks after Sean sat down with his new attorney and opened up about his abuse. His life right now was all about figuring out how to return to society, build a normal adult life. For that, Sean looked up to his older brother. Josh was engaged to be married to his girlfriend, Caitlin. They had a home in Pittsburgh. They were both working. They had friends, went to concerts. They were happy. Spending time with them made Sean feel happy, too. He'd often volunteer to come over on the weekends just to help out with household chores or build something for their home. Josh and Caitlin loved that. They loved having him around. He'd come around. to the house here and help us with yard work and stuff because he was he loved being outside and doing yard work and everything. So we'd be like, oh, we're going to go do this. And he'd laugh at us because we're not handy at all. <laughs> So Sean would always come over and be like, oh, you too. Josh, get out of the way. Like, let me just do this. Josh and I'd be like, yeah, we're just going to have you do that. And I'd joke that I was going to have him build me a rabbit cage because I had a rabbit at the time. And he's like, yeah, definitely. Like, I'll totally, you know, buy the wood and I'll do it for you. 
And like, I've kind of felt like this is the Sean that I never really got to know because the Sean that I knew before was always through letters or when we'd go and visit him or through phone calls or, you know, spotty encounters like at the house when he'd be there. Like, just there were a lot of good days. But St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day, yeah. So we went to a concert. Of that last year. And I can't, I think we were going with my buddy. He was, he was happy. You know what I mean? I remember one point I looked at you and said, that's awesome. Like, but then there was then it didn't like, feel like I was babysitting as much as it was like I wanted him to have a good time. And, and it just happened organically. I didn't have to force it. We saw him finally like turning a corner. Like I thought that, you know, like he was addressing the abuse. He was getting some help for it. He was having those good you know, they seemed like they were longer of good stretches rather than bad stretches. Yeah, there was a lot of times when he was doing better. I mean, he looked healthy. He was laughing, enjoying things. Um, he had a steady job. He enjoyed going to do the job. He wanted to be around the family. He would come around and do things, offer to give me a, you know, call me or and wanted his chat or before it was like pulling teeth just to get a hold of him. Uh, so, yes, he definitely wanted to and kept trying. He never gave up on trying. Yeah. From Advanced Local and Meadowlark Media, I'm Sarah Gannam. This is the mayor of Maple Avenue. Chapter 5. Sean was at a critical juncture. He might have been trying, but he was dealing with a lot. He had just ripped off a major Band-Aid, telling his story of abuse for the first time. Plus, he had legal prescriptions for tramadol and gabapentin, two drugs that he could use and abuse without violating probation. Still, he was expected by the system to somehow just deal with it all on his own. Sean needed someone to talk to, and of all people, he found a welcoming ear with his probation officer, a soft-spoken man named Dave Morante. I met him on his, actually, his brother's front porch, and we talked for a significant amount of time, probably in the upwards of 45 minutes to an hour, which is pretty good. Dave was assigned to Sean's case shortly after Sean left the ranch and moved to Pittsburgh. He wasn't much older than Sean, and they immediately connected. Sometimes an initial interview, when you first meet somebody, maybe 30 minutes, but Sean... As a PO, I think he just gives people open-ended questions, let them talk, try to listen, try to learn. And Sean talked, and I let him go for a while. And um, he did tell me at that time. Well, he hedged a little bit. He told me that he was sexually abused, and I had never— I've had individuals, clients, that have had some form of a trauma at some point. But nothing like that. Sean mentioned Jerry Sandusky, and I immediately already knew. And I'll be honest with you, it kind of made me take a step back. Like, wow, I could understand. I mean, all you have to do is say the name and people know. So I, I totally can understand the trauma and all that stuff that comes along with that. And I could tell just by talking to him, you could see it in his eyes, that there was significant pain there. When Dave and I met to talk about Sean, it was clear to me that they had a special relationship. Dave took extra care with Sean. He saw him as a human, not just a case number. He was crying. And I don't know if he had been dying to find someone to tell that, you know, he didn't know anything about me. It was the first time we ever met. Um, If he decided to leave Allegheny County, it would be the only time we ever met. You know what I mean? So maybe he just wanted someone's ear to beat in about it. Maybe he could tell genuinely that I cared. I don't know. You know what I mean? I try to let people talk and hear them out versus being like, here's X, Y, and Z. This is what you need to do. Stay out of trouble. All right, bud, take care. 
see you next month, you know? And um, I could tell Sean needed help, you know? I mean, he was sitting on his brother, brother's front porch and his brother, he didn't even have the keys to the house. His brother wasn't giving him access to his home. So that tells you exactly where he stood with his family too. As hard as Sean was trying to lead a normal life, at best, he was only halfway. He was constantly toggling between his old life and a potential new one, desperately holding on to anything that might tip the scales toward being his old self again. Oh, he talked about the wedding a lot. And that's probably why he was so focused on Josh and Caitlin's wedding. That was definitely something he was looking forward to, was them having their wedding day and him being there. Everyone I talked to from that period of his life remembers how Sean really latched onto the hope of being there for his brother on his big day. It had become his North Star and a major signpost for Sean on his road to recovery. Josh and Caitlin set an October wedding date, and Sean had no intention of missing it. He didn't reveal his true feelings, you know, a whole lot. But I could kind of read him in a, a little bit that way. And I could just tell that this meant the world to him to be in the wedding. But that was eight months away. And the path that lay ahead was treacherous, to say the least. In addition to the more complex issues of trauma and addiction, Sean was expected to care for himself in a way that he hadn't needed to do for a long, long time. After all those years in drug court, in jail, in facilities, he needed to find his own housing and then get a job so he could pay for it. He started by trying the halfway house that was recommended by the ranch physician, Dr. Christopher Davis. It was called Keep It Green, a sober community located in York, Pennsylvania. Davis told Sean that this place would tolerate Suboxone treatment, but when Sean arrived, he had a prescription for his tooth pain from the dentist, and that drug was not allowed. He left after five days. From there, Sean began hopping to different sober communities and halfway houses, trying to get back on his feet. One place kicked him out because of his prescription for gabapentin. He went on a Saturday. He called me on a Wednesday. And he told me he had to leave. Another had a different problem with drugs. He just said, I can't stay here. You know, everywhere I go, there's there's Narcan hanging on the bathroom walls. It's everywhere down here. Rules were lax. He turned around and Sean said to him, well, aren't you going to drug test me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me go up and get a drug test. It's up at the other house. Some were in such bad physical shape, it was hard for Marianne to imagine how someone could ever put their life back together inside of a place that was literally falling apart. I couldn't even breathe in there. There was holes in the wall. There was moldy stuff on the counters and ashtrays and cigarettes everywhere. I thought, what a death trap. Sean would go on to stay in four different sober communities and halfway houses over the span of one month. And the experience was so bad that he eventually completely ditched them, deciding they just weren't working for him. It made me wonder, was this a common experience for addicts? In theory, halfway houses are supposed to ease the transition from a controlled rehab environment to living on your own. There are different levels of step-down, but the general idea is that if you're an addict fresh in recovery, you're living with other people who are in the same situation. 
but I quickly learned from talking to people about halfway houses that this is a very polarizing subject. Some people touted their experience as vital to sober success. Others struggled to say a single nice thing about them, lumping them all together as filthy, drug-infested hovels. If you're an addict, the last place in my mind you should be is with 12 other addicts living in a house. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense to me. That's Jack Green again, the guy who lived with Sean at the ranch. Because again, everyone's on a different level of wanting to be sober. And Jack is not a fan. And if I'm in a halfway house and I'm questioning my sobriety and I'm really thinking about using, no one knows how to get drugs any better than a drug addict. So you got 12 guys in the house who aren't working, aren't doing much, and they got a lot of free time in their hands. So guess what? If they want to find drugs, they're going to find drugs. They're usually, you know, extremely strict, almost to the point that they're too strict. And I think rebellion is a very quick thought at the halfway houses, you know, from just talking to Sean and a couple others. Jack Green told me that he would often pick Sean up and take him to AA meetings, trying to help keep Sean on track. Sean wasn't the only one that I would take to AA. There was about two or three of us that I would pick up. Were the places that he lived, I mean, did they look decent? Because some of them have been described to me as like really falling apart and... Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're shitty little apartment buildings in the city. I mean, that's, you know, nothing against them, but, you know, I, I can buy a old shitty building in downtown any town usa that sleeps you know 10 people and i can follow whatever rules i gotta follow to start a halfway house it's a money-making thing in, in my eyes but he's not alone in his criticism even dave morante sean's probation officer struggled to say nice things about the realities of halfway houses it's basically a booming private industry from what i've seen and There are individuals, at least where I worked in Allegheny County, that would own multiple treatment facilities, halfway houses, three-quarter houses, whatever they fall in. And they would turn over beds and people would be in them left and right because I'm assuming the money was good for them. And I would get a lot of people that would relapse in them. I think you can find good houses. I do think there are facilities where if the coordinator's good and the senior-level guy who's in that program takes it serious and runs a good ship and they are selective with who they take, I think it can be good. But for the most part, it seems like a lot of institutional knowledge, like guys do in jail, like, you know what I mean? They, they learn what they can do, when they can do it. In private halfway houses, like the ones that Sean was bouncing between, there's typically a house manager, someone who has been sober for a while. They tried to help them get set up in the area. They would like take them for food stamps or job applications, and they transport them and help them. Some of them. Some places do random drug tests, and there are rules which vary from house to house about attending meetings, getting a job, and what kind of possessions you can have in the house. Stuff like that. Halfway houses are typically a little more structured than sober houses. In most states, halfway houses are licensed and can bill insurance companies for payment. Sober houses cannot. They rely on rent or government subsidies. A lot of them want money up front. So you think about that. If that guy said if he had 10 
to 15 guys in a house and he's charging 700 and some dollars a month per person, they're making some pretty good money doing that. The guys take care of their own, you know, they have to have their own stuff, go get their own food. It's just like being a regular landlord. You could be a slumlord or you could be a great landlord. As Marianne described to me, Sean struggled to find a safe, clean halfway house in those first few months of 2018. I will admit, I had a pretty dim view of halfway houses and the people who run them. It seemed like he had run into a lot of slumlords. But when I went to Pittsburgh to meet with some of the people that Sean encountered during these years, I met the owner of one of these halfway houses where Sean lived. His name is Dave. And the guy who runs the house, the supervisor, his name is Anthony. This particular house is the one Marianne described. I couldn't even breathe in there. Well, not too kindly. But Dave and Anthony were eager to talk about the challenges that accompany the business of so-called sober living. We met at a Panera Bread. A little over 10 years ago, I overdosed. And they brought me to Dave's recovery house. Anthony started by telling me how Dave's sober house saved his life. And I went there and I stayed there and, you know, went to meetings every day and went from 10 years of shooting heroin every day to not using it all. And I have 10 years clean on August 2nd. I had 10 years clean. Anthony, of course, remembered Sean and his mother. He knew how she had described the condition of the house to me, and it was clear that it was bothering him deeply. Like, I've overdosed five different times. So had I not been brought back, how can I help all these people? You know, so they see another side and they like, and they say it helps them. Do you understand? And um, so that's why I get real passionate about it. And it's just like, I, I don't like being looked at in a negative light in any way. But before I could say anything, Dave, the landlord, stepped in. I have a three-quarter house to do this, to do that. Most of the times I'm being generalization here. Usually a negative connotation associated with it. Like, what is that negative connotation? They're going to be bringing drugs into the house. And now my teenage daughter or son who only lives three houses away or four houses away is going to be subjected to that. Just the you know? stigma that's behind the addiction as it is. It's just, just addictions in general. Like the neighborhood will get kind of upset that you're in the neighborhood. Certain neighborhoods, communities, things like ours, the, like the one I'm in, like they said, they've lived there 29 years and never had neighbors as good as us. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like we sell their sidewalks for them. We do all this, like carry their groceries. It's like the negative because you'll have an overdose. That's life. Like when you're working in this, it, it's what happens. And so you see an ambulance or something like that on your street and it's just like, here they go again. Dr. William Miller, who studies recovery practices and outcomes, told me that the concept of a halfway house does make sense. It makes sense if you're coming out of particularly a residential kind of program to go right back into the community again is a, is a big shock. You're suddenly exposed to all the same hues and all the same conditions in which you were using before and all the same people too, by the way. And if there's not transition to help the person make that adjustment back into the community, it's harder. So just helping people those transitions makes sense. The problem is that without regulation, anything goes. If you, uh, if you break a leg or something, there's a rehab program that you go to where they do physical therapy with you and help you get back on your feet, literally. And those, those are subject to medical standards. You have to be a licensed person to at least supervise treatment there. Uh, and to provide 
treatment. Halfway houses, again, the regulation is, is either absent or very, very weak. In 2020, there was only one state, Arizona, that requires both state licensing and private certification for recovery residences. There were 12 states with no regulations or accreditations at all, another 26 that rely on private third-party certification boards, and the remaining 39 states either have state licensing only or are developing private third parties in collaboration with the National Alliance for Recovery Residences. That's a mouthful, but it's a nonprofit that writes standards for states to adopt to keep recovery houses in check. Right. There is no national standard. Fred Way is the president of the National Alliance for Recovery Residences. And the problem, as Fred sees it, is the same as almost everything else related to addiction and recovery. There is very little regulation. Will we ever get better than bad apples? Probably not. But if we can cut the barrel in half then I I would say that's a win for all of us. Why did you say, will we ever get rid of the bad apples? You said no. Why would Uh, you say that? Because you're always going to have, you know, someone running a boarding house, or as we call it, a rogue recovery house, will be around. We don't want them around, but they will be around. Dave told me that 10 years ago, he was a traditional landlord. His tenant was moving out, and a real estate agent approached him. And he says, I'd like to rent a place off of you. I said, okay, what's going on? And he started telling me, he goes, well, I have some guys that need a place to stay. because the rent will be coming directly from me. You know, you don't have anything to worry about. You can just do that. So I said, okay, I needed a renter. I really didn't know anything else about it. Fast forward about six, seven, eight months later, I get an anonymous letter in the mail. still remember this was on a Saturday morning. I get an anonymous letter in the mail, and it says that my home is in shambles. Uh, There are people parking, loud noise, all this kind of stuff like that. He calls up the real estate agent and confronts him about it, and the guy says... Oh, no, Dave, everything is fine. Something's just not clicking. So, Anthony was at the house. I decided to make an unannounced visit about two days later. And I remember this was a Tuesday evening. I knock on the door. These guys don't know who I am from anybody. And I say, I own the house. Well, I'm going to say there was about 8 or 10 or 12 guys there. And they turned, I would say they turned on me. In other words, they shifted their anger towards me. Because the plumbing was leaking. It's a mirror of things. They go, we heard you don't fix anything, you do this and that. I said, yeah, time out. And I explained everything to them. So one thing led to another, and the guys realized that I wasn't lying, is the person who was moderating it was. And the guys were sitting there, and Anthony was one of the guys. And they implored me, they said, you know, please don't kick us out. We have nowhere else to go. If you shut this house down. I go, I don't know anything about a three-quarter. I know nothing. And they go, please work with us. We have nowhere else to go. And so I went back to them the next day, and I said, okay, we'll give this a shot on a month-to-month basis. And that was about 10 years ago. I mean, that's an incredible story. My immediate reaction to that story was, wow, This industry is so unregulated that this guy owned a halfway house and didn't even know it? We we have said many times, if there were just basic regulations for these, 
it would make things so much better, not just for us, you know, from the stigma and everything else that we were alluding to earlier, but just for the guys and the girls in general. I mean, there are also there are also three quarter rooms for women that are just literally like sex traps. Oh man, am I embellishing? No. Yeah, I mean it's you know it's not good, and those go unchecked. Oh, there's some horrible acts. There's a numerable number of horror stories, and it's right. sad. Like a lot of these recovery houses, you're walking in, most everybody's getting high. And they're money pits from the standpoint of they don't mind when people use because. They get to fill up the bed, and then when that person comes back, seven to eight to ten to order, they charge them that money again. At the end of 2017, the governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf, signed a new law that should have created new regulations for sober houses and halfway houses. But five years later, no new oversight is in place. Some of the delay has been blamed on the COVID-19 pandemic, but the problems began long before it started. So things remain unchanged. Managing a halfway house is still a for-profit business with few rules. Although Dave told me that he himself barely breaks even every month. The expenses of running the house mean that it's not profitable. I mean, well, you gotta realize electric with six men with cell phones, laptops, TVs, fire sticks, Wi-Fi. The cable bill alone is $250 a month for each house. The water bills are ridiculous. Now you're coming into winter, so now you're going to have five, six hundred dollar heating bill. But the way the way we operate, Anthony will will tell me like, hey, we're running a little short here. As a separate owner, if you will, you know, ultimately you have to pay the bills and things like that. We we've come to a mutual understanding, and this has been in existence for not just eight months. We're talking like eight years, Sarah. Is this is going to come off really like too good to be true? But it's a truth is if a person shows up and doesn't have the 400 or 450 dollars we don't we don't require that all we ask was within two weeks you find a job and as long as you are as anthony knows if you're making a concerted effort to try to work we'll work with you we're not there for the money we're there to provide these guys a safe and structured environment and as long as you do your chores, you try to go to meetings, you get a job and you work, and you don't use, we'll work with you. It does seem too good to be true. No, no. I mean, that, but you know, in like a, I'm saying that in, in, in jest because I think that's probably not normal. Every year my tax guy, I'm, I'm a civil engineer. Yeah, I see why you do this. Yes, yes, because it's basically a wash. I told you before how I walked into this interview with a dim view of people who run halfway houses, but I pretty quickly realized that I was probably generalizing things too much. Maybe these two guys, Dave and Anthony, are the exception, but it sure seems like they are trying pretty hard to do the right thing. It's just that without any rules or regulations, a lot of people like Sean find themselves in places run by people who are not just okay with breaking even, like Dave is. Here's Fred Way again. Believe me, if you're doing it the right way, you're not going to be buying no boats. The argument against regulation is that it would make things even more expensive. But it just can't be that the best-case scenario is throwing away rules in order to keep costs down. That doesn't seem to benefit anyone except the bad actors. 
Fred Way told me, as it is right now, his organization can't even go into a bad house to investigate when there's a complaint. That's how lax things are. Because we are not the police. A house, you know, that is not certified or working with us, you know, even though we may get a complaint on it, do not have to let us in. You know, I won't take my wife to the houses because she'll look at it and she'll be like, it's sad. And it's the type of existence that you and I would never try to engage in. Until you are forced to engage with it. After years of being arm's length away from addiction, Dave was pushed into the deep end. Five years ago, then my son. So I'll just leave it at that. And in that last five years, we've lost, when I say we, my family and my son, who is recovering, uh, lost three friends. Of his friends. Of his friends who I coach football with, parents are very close. Sean only stayed at Dave's sober house for three weeks. He never knew about Dave's son. He never had the chance to be mentored by Anthony because he relapsed again. On Sean's 26th birthday, February 12th, 2018, Mike and Marianne drove to Pittsburgh to take him to dinner. We took him. I have a picture of that one that we went. He he loved um, Texas Roadhouse. Sean just was already falling apart. He did get up and go to the bathroom quite a few times, and I noticed he was sweating. So I kind of thought, okay, you know, right away your mind goes to, is he withdrawing? Is he using? Is he, you know, what's happening? He could have been in the bathroom using for all I know. I mean, I'm guessing that, I mean, those are things that go through your head. I, I, I don't know, but I knew something even seemed more strange to me. So honestly, I think he probably definitely was using, but they just didn't really pick up on it yet at that point. Well, Anthony at the halfway house was about to pick up on it. The house manager, he noticed he was, he looked off, you know, and said, when you get home, I need a urine. He he sent a text back saying, I use and I'm not going to be coming back. And he, he didn't come back from that point. Halfway houses clearly were not working for Sean, and he was reluctant to keep trying. So he moved into an apartment with a friend in Pittsburgh. And now he was really on his own, thrown into the deep end of taking care of himself and navigating all the challenges and triggers in the world around him. He had no more professional support. And that's partly because throughout this whole time that Sean was struggling in halfway houses, Marianne had been struggling with something else an attempt to find her son a qualified therapist, someone who could make sure that whatever progress he might have made while at the ranch continued. Without therapy to continue to address his trauma, he was unlikely to break his cycle. He was unlikely to get a chance to live a normal life, to even make it to his brother's wedding. But good luck finding one. I had a list of doctors that I looked through on his insurance to see or counselors that would would deal. And it's, nope, we don't take that. Nope, we don't take that. I mean, I just felt like I was, I was his therapist trying to find him therapy. He was on Medicaid and you couldn't find an outpatient therapist? Yeah, or they didn't have any openings, the ones that he was referred to, or they wouldn't call back. 
The reality of our healthcare system is that it's a tiered system related to wealth. If money is no barrier, it can buy the best therapy in the world. But if you're on Medicaid, like Sean, well, good luck. So I just got on the computer myself and, and Googled sexual abuse counselors. And I found one that came up and I ended up calling and talking to him myself. She finally connected with someone, a guy who advertised as a family therapist, a guy named Christopher Spann. Spann told Marianne his approach was to treat the whole family, not just Sean. She shared the text messages with me that they exchanged over several months. One of them, from Spann, lays out his approach. He says, Good morning. I've been pondering the condition of your son, and it's been revealed to me that the core of his behaviors is the addictive drug that we all use at times, anger from unresolved feelings. The self-created drug gives a power that creates an inner but self-destructive sense of power. Treatment requires both individual and family therapy that focuses on the slight and misperceptions that have developed either intentionally or accidentally. This is not an attempt to blame, but rather identify and resolve. Ponder this for a day or two and let's discuss. Thank you, Dr. C. Dr. C. That's how he signed all of his messages. Because there's one of the texts that even say that from Sean, is he a doctor? And I said, why? And he said, because he, he signs his text. Every time he'd say something, he'd say, Dr. C. So I knew that because he was doing that to me too. And I just said, no, he's a counselor. Marianne trusted Dr. C. She wanted to give him a chance. And frankly, even if she had reservations, she didn't have much of a choice. No one else was calling her back. Several experts I talked to said that therapists are in such high demand, it is very hard to find ones that are willing to deal with all the extra paperwork that comes with a Medicaid patient. But as critical weeks passed, nothing seemed to be happening, nothing that benefited Sean anyway. Marianne began to suspect that Sean was using again. All the signs were there. He totaled his car one night around midnight. Which was another red flag. And then he lost his job as a landscaper. Because he was supposed to be mulching with a crew. And he was said he was sick. So he went up and laid on the grass at one point. Which he probably just was struggling to function because he couldn't get the drug and didn't have the money. Meanwhile, Marianne recalls her conversations with Chris Spann amounting to little more than additional conversations with Chris Spann. He had so much time to talk to me. It was almost like he kept trying to spin it that he wanted to counsel me, not Sean. Sean did meet up with him once or twice. He said to me at this meeting that Sean came to one, but he was so high, he was nodding off, and people were mad at him at the, at the meeting, tell him what, what was he there for. He said, but, you know, I didn't want to throw him out. And that was the turning point for Marianne. She wanted him to return to a treatment center. But when Sean's probation officer, Dave Morante, suggested a place that Sean could check into, Chris Spann jumped in and told Marianne that the better course of action was to send Sean to a place called the Alpha House, which at the time used a method called behavior modification. Behavior modification uses positive and negative consequences to change how a person makes decisions. Alpha House? I don't know if you know anything about Alpha House. This is Dave, the probation officer again. Alpha House is a very, a break them down and build them back up facility. And it is very strict and 
in your face and authoritative and you earn every bit of respect and privilege through their program. And I actually, after talking to Sean a little bit, didn't think that was a good fit for him, but that wasn't my decision. Dave is talking about the Alpha House under its former leadership. The Alpha House has since changed management and no longer uses this method, telling me in an email that they are proud to have implemented, quote, new evidence-based practices. But back then, Span told the family that this was the right place for Sean, and that Span would even be there every day to help make sure that Sean succeeded. I mean, this guy was praising it up and down. I'm going to be in there. I'm going to work with him. I can ride my bike. I'm right down the street. Marianne desperately wanted to trust the opinion of someone professional. So she took Chris Span's advice, and she switched courses. Sean checked into a detox facility in preparation, and the staff there made an ominous prediction. You'll never survive that place, I can tell you that right now. In a letter that he wrote to a friend on the day he arrived, Sean talks about how strict it was. I have to fucking ask permission to enter and exit a room. Ask permission to go to the fucking bathroom. These people are crazy. This place is seriously set up for fucking failure. I seriously don't know if I can last here for this long, baby. I really don't. They're fucking ridiculous here. And Chris Spann's promise to be there every day? Well, was he there? Was he in there with him? He wasn't even allowed. That's where the red flags really started coming. I was just so desperate for help that I didn't see, like, wow, how does this great sexual therapist counselor, how does he have time for me? How is he talking to me for half hour, 45 minutes? You know, he should be really busy. Well, later, when I Googled him again, I tried to... When you Google Chris Spann, here's what comes up. Dateline, Pittsburgh, Associated Press. A family therapist who works to keep young men out of the child welfare system has been jailed on charges he badly beat his adopted 11-year-old son for not doing his homework. In 2013, Spann pleaded guilty to three assault-related charges after police say he beat his adopted son for not wanting to do his homework. According to the New Pittsburgh Courier, the beating lasted three hours, left the boy visibly injured, and it was not the first time it happened. Christopher Spann, 52, of Pittsburgh, remained jailed Friday, a day after his arraignment, on charges of aggravated assault, reckless endangerment, and endangering the welfare of a child. Spann pleaded not guilty. Salvation Army workers called the police on Wednesday after the boy arrived for an after-school program with a black eye, lumps on his head, marks on his face and neck, and bruises on his legs. The boy contends Spann has beaten him several times in the past, but that Tuesday's incident was the worst, according to a police complaint. This, of course, is not proof that Chris Spann wronged the Sinisi family, But what is undeniably true is that this is a critical time for Sean. He really, really needs outpatient counseling right now. But the way the system is rigged, the only choice he really had was to exchange text messages with a guy who himself is accused of child abuse. And even setting aside Chris Spann's criminal activity, his recommendations for Sean proved to be ill-fated. Marianne would later hear from many more experts, pretty much exactly what Dave the probation officer said, 
the behavioral modification at the Alpha House was not the right kind of thing for someone like Sean, who was also dealing with the trauma of sexual abuse. I don't think that treatment needs to be fun. I get it. You know what I mean? But I think you need to be comfortable. He was clearly uncomfortable. He needed, in my opinion, and obviously, I mean, not a therapist or anything, but just from the outside looking in that way, he definitely needed a just a professional in that trauma and then probably another one in drug and alcohol. Someone that specializes in that, which I, I don't even know if there's anyone that can do both. Well, that is what Chris Spann said he could do. But according to Marianne... Things started to get really goofy, and I I was on the phone with him, and he said, Marianne, you just need to let him go. We need to break him. I want him broken down in the fetal position on the floor begging. And then we will bring him back up and build him again. That freaked me out bad. And that's when I was like, oh, my God, what did I do? Who is this guy? I guess, you know, in hindsight, you look back and I think, God, was I so stupid. But now I look at it as, no, I was so desperate. As things begin to fall apart, the former director of the Alpha House calls a meeting with Dave Morante, and Chris Spann shows up for it, too. And I mean, I can remember the meeting very well. I only met Chris that one time with Sean. And Chris, through that interaction, was dead set on this. He needs to hit rock bottom and come back up. And Sean pushed back hard right away. After the meeting, Sean called his mom. And I guess he wasn't allowed to be calling. They didn't want him to. You know, I don't think there was ever a time that, unless he was locked up, that he couldn't call. And I'm sure he felt like that just didn't make sense. So when he did call, he was pretty upset and said that he didn't belong there. You have me in the wrong kind of a place. And then I could hear them screaming at him and saying, what are you doing on that phone? And it, you know, he he proceeded to yell for a while back to them, saying, I'm talking to my mom, let me alone. And the person was screaming, and then it disconnected. Hello? Hey, Chris, this is Sarah Gannum. Chris Spann no longer lives in Pittsburgh. Yeah, how you doing? Good, how are you? He moved to California after his arrest. I know he will. Good, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. But I was able to reach him by phone one morning. So I just want to tell you a little bit about the project that I'm working on, and then we can, you know, chat. I've been talking to everybody who encountered Sean at different points in his journey. And his story for me kind of embodies this societal failure to address trauma when there's addiction involved. Well, to be honest with you, the the things that you're bringing up, they're more global to what you think because I'm actually considered one of the few therapists that will deal with that issue I've been in the field for 33 years, and I discovered a connection between uh, sexual abuse and addiction among males, I say about the fifth year of my career, and I'm kind of surprised that it's still not, well, I'm going to be honest, I'm not surprised it's not being addressed, because I'm going to tell you a story when I first came into the field. Chris Spann immediately begins to tell me the same story he told Marianne about how his first job in the business of recovery, he was told... They said, Mr. Spam, we do not make money off recovery. Do you understand your position now? In other words, they said, 
we take money off keeping people sick. And I have found in my 32-year career that that is the basis of a lot of facilities. I've worked um, at about two different facilities in Pittsburgh, and I'm now out here in California, and I find it very similar that the goal is to keep people sick enough so that you continue to have an income coming in for your agency. You know, granted, there are some responsibility on their on the clients to do what they need to do, but as you have brought out, they're not giving it a fair shot. The goal is not to make people better. The goal is to assure that you have a group of people who will come keep the money into your pocket. So you said you said in the beginning that you're one of the few people. I mean, Marianne told me that she had a really hard time finding a therapist, and I think that's how she landed on you, right? Is that your recollection? Yeah, because basically I am advertised. Um, I forget the the, web, the website that actually says, you know, this guy deals with, you know, sexual abuse. And I'm not saying I'm like one of a few, but I know there's not a lot out there who actually tried to Chris Van told me that while he was practicing in Pittsburgh, he was treating 25 to 30 men who were victims, just like Sean. And Span told me he saw a lot of them relapse. Like most men, a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of denial, a lot of uh, self-blame, a lot of anger and frustration. So it's kind of like a circle. It's like on one level, I'm a victim, but on the other level, but I was responsible, so it's my fault. And that is where the confusion kicks in to, hey, the only skip I have now where I have power is, let me get high. But I wanted to get a sense of whether Marianne's assessment was correct, that they didn't actually spend much time together. How many times did you guys meet and talk in that time period? Try to remember. Um, it was weekly, maybe three or four times a week. Three or four times a week that you guys met? We talked on the phone. How many times did you guys meet? Due to distance, it was difficult to actually meet face-to-face. Try to remember. I can't, I can't, I apologize, I can't recollect. And also I did family sessions too. So. Did you feel like with him it was effective that you were getting through to him and making progress? He was talking. He was talking, he was sharing some things that I know is very painful for him to share. I know he was at a stage where he really, really wanted help. The, the stage that we probably got to was the place of an interpatient facility. And that the facility he was in that I know of, I thought it was good for him, but that's when I lost contact. I was basically cut off at that point, so I no longer had any contact with him. You were cut off? Can you explain what that means? I was no longer allowed to participate and assisting. Here, Chris Band begins telling me the story of what happened at the Alpha House from his perspective. In hindsight, do you think Alpha House was the right place for him? That's hard to say because at that point, I've no longer in connections. I don't know what was going on. Well, he was only there for like a couple of days. Oh, wow. You didn't know that? No, I didn't. Like I said, my contact was cut off. I was no longer permitted any information from anybody. So in other words, he just basically fell off the radar with me. That's actually, can you explain that to me? Because I thought you were there the day that he left. You were in the meeting with them. 
with the probation officer and the director of Alpha House and Sean about him wanting to leave. Yes, I was. But at that point, it was basically a, a meeting to say, hey, this is what's going on. This is the consequences, blase, blase. But that was the last meeting that I knew about. At that point, I was cut off. I phone numbers. I was blocked. I knew nothing after that. But you did know that he left. No, I didn't. Oh, okay. The meeting was to basically avert his leaving. But after that, I had no other contact. Nobody called me. I mean, when you called Gary Davis, first time I found out what had happened to him. One of the reasons that his mom told me that he agreed to go to Alpha House is because I guess he was relaying to his mom and, and you were relaying to his mom that you would be able to go there and, and continue your treatment with him, that he believed that you would not be cut off. Is Does that seem accurate to you? It's, it seems accurate, and I believe that I'd still be alive, but I, I was cut off. And I didn't know whether the family initiated it or the agency initiated it. I was cut off from everybody. So I really appreciate your candor here in this conversation. I wonder, you know, his mom has kind of expressed some reservations about the relationship and just thought that, you know, maybe you guys didn't meet enough times that you maybe tried to push the God card a little bit with him and he was resistant to that. And she also just felt like it was more therapy for her than it ended up being for Sean. What do you what do you think about that? That's your perception. I can't debate a person's perception. She also felt like the Alpha House like is pretty well known to be a break them down before you can build them up kind of place. And she didn't think that was right for him. And I guess neither did the probation officer. What do you think about that? Again, I, that's their perception. I have to, you know, it's kind of like if I like something and somebody else doesn't, that's their perception. And I know people who've done well there. I also know people who've not done well. And it's a combination of things. But I put an onus on first the professional that they give the best they can. As I said, when I thought out from my first job I had, that their motivation was just purely financial. That kind of helped me to understand and watch how I walk in the field among my colleagues, you know, so. When you say that you put the onus on the professional, do you feel like you did all that you could have done for him? And do you feel like in any way responsible for that time period? I did the best to my skills and knowledge and ability. I've been doing pro bono, so there was no financial gain for me. Could more have been done? Probably on some level, I said the major thing that I found difficult was the fact that we were working long distance, so that hindered a lot of things. Well, he wasn't, though, to be clear. I mean, he was in Pittsburgh. His mom was not. His mom was in Blair County, but, but he was in Pittsburgh. Yeah, but, I mean, he chose not to always meet face-to-face. I see. Which made it difficult. I see. I mean, I've seen some of the communications because she shared them with me. I just was curious. I mean, is Dr. C, like, something that you go by? Are are you a doctor? I do have a doctorate, yes. Oh, you do have a doctorate. In what? Okay. I'm kind of concerned about where these questions are going. I saw Dr. C at the end of every single text message, so I'm curious about what... Well, it's it's an information systems communication, and and I used to investigate addiction. Information systems and communication is what your doctorate's in? Yes. Okay. I mean, you can understand how that might, like, be confusing to people. 
that you call yourself Dr. C as a therapist? What do you mean? Well, I mean, if I saw that and I was a patient, I might think you have a medical doctorate because it's therapy. And you know something? Honestly, that has been something that a lot of people I have found don't understand about doctorates. But once I explain to them, once I show my skills, then it's okay. But yeah. You're saying once you explain it to them, people understand why you call yourself Dr. C? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, I'm asking a question. I mean, did you explain to Sean? There are some text messages here from Sean where he's questioning that. He questions if you're a doctor. He thought you were a medical doctor. So that's why I'm asking. I never give people the impression I'm a medical doctor. Okay, so you explain to him what your doctorate's in. Yes. Okay. And can you tell me what your therapy-related credentials are? In regards to... Well, you give people advice and you advertise as a therapist, right? So what are your credentials related my, to that? My credentials are a master's degree from Duquesne University in community counseling and mental health. You're no longer living in Pittsburgh, right? You completely moved away from the area? Yes. Can you tell me when? Why is that necessary? I'm just curious. Oh, because I'm telling a story and so it's just like helpful to frame when you left. I'm just... Out of curiosity, you moved away from the area. So is there a reason or a time frame that you could give me some context? For? I mean, you don't, you know, you certainly don't have to, but I'm just asking. Okay, I choose not to answer that one. Okay. Uh, listen, I, I have to ask this question. While it may be uncomfortable, but I did see some criminal charges um, that were filed against you. And I just wanted to know if you wanted to respond to any of that. What did, did you see? Abuse-related charges related to your son? I explained to him that the abuse-related charges of his adopted son are on the Internet. And once I told him, he admitted it. Yeah, what happened, I had used corporal punishment on him, and I was arrested. I pleaded guilty. That's common knowledge. I was just surprised to see that because, like, everything that you talked about in the last 30-minute conversation was about kind of meeting people where they are and a different kind of philosophy, I guess, at dealing with people. So it just didn't seem to jive with the way you kind of portray your therapy and your help. That was a very embarrassing time because of that, because I, I was overwhelmed as a foster parent. And unfortunately, I did not reach out to get what I needed at the time. And so that's why afterwards I did address the issues. And so, you know, it's it's a mark against me. But since then, I've actually taken the steps to address it. And so that that situation is actually it was a growth period for me. Oh, well, good. I'm glad to hear that. I wish you the best in that way. And thank you for shedding some light on your time with Sean and I will let you know when the podcast is done. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. After I talked to Chris Pan, I went to the Pennsylvania database for certified therapists to see if his license was revoked after his arrest. But it turns out he was never in the system. Chris Spann stopped practicing in Pennsylvania just as the state began to require licenses for family therapists. In fact, the new law went into effect the same summer that Chris Spann stopped seeing Sean. 
I'll be honest. I don't know what to think about this whole Chris Spann situation. He does make some important points, and he seems to get the big picture of the problem that kept Sean from getting the right kind of help inside of treatment facilities. But still, there remains this unanswered question about how much time he actually spent with Sean. Marianne says it was not very much at all. Spam says they had a lot of phone calls, just not in-person meetings. Oh, and he's not getting paid, which begs the question, what is Chris Spann getting out of all of this? Even if we give everyone here the benefit of the doubt, the reality is this was not the right treatment for Sean. That was clear to Dave, the probation officer, and it was clear to Sean's family. And Sean? Well, amidst the chaos, Sean never lost sight of his North Star— Sure, he was using again, but there was no doubt in his mind that he would be in shape to attend his brother's wedding in just a few months. Josh and Caitlin were watching everything unfold from the sidelines, and as the days passed, they didn't see such a clear path to that reality. Josh had really been concerned, and Caitlin and he were getting, you know, was getting closer to the wedding. And we always kept it on hold, you know, that Sean was going to be in it. But, you know, it was getting down to the wire of tuxedos and measurements and all that. So Josh had called me and he said, Mom, what am I supposed to do here? You know, Sean doesn't seem real stable. The wedding's going to happen. I have to know. I can't, you know, what do we do? And I said, you know, Josh, I think whatever you want to do, I think is, it's your day. It's Caitlin's day. You're going to have to make a decision, and I'll support you in whatever that is. And he said, I hate to say this out loud, Mom, but I think it's time we pulled the plug and not have a minute. I mean, he was coming to the wedding. We were all excited. It was just, you know, he wasn't a part of the wedding party just because I couldn't I couldn't rely on him. That was the main thing, and I didn't want him. It sounds so terrible, but it's not. I, I didn't want him, you know, in pictures and stuff like that if he was he doped so up well. or, you know what I mean? Um it wasn't fair to her or to the family or to myself or anything else to have maybe one of those crises if something were to happen on that day. Um, so, I mean, he was definitely coming to the wedding. He was invited. I just I just couldn't have him in the wedding party just because of the reliability piece. I just didn't know what was going to happen. Sean did not have phone privileges at the Alpha House, so when a woman came to visit, he took the opportunity to borrow hers, and he called his mom. And he brought up the wedding and asked about Josh and stuff. And I said, yeah. And I, he said, well, w- what's going on with that? Like, I'm in here. How am I gonna, I have to get fitted for the tuxedos and stuff. I didn't expect that to come out of his mouth. So I really felt like that was the time to tell him. And I just said, Sean, you need to focus on on this. The wedding was about four months away at this point. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, I had a conversation with your brother. You are living a very unstable life. You don't have a job. And we don't know what's going to go on. So this is about their day. He loves you. He wants you there, both of them. But we think that it's best that you're not in the wedding. Well, that didn't go over well. He just said, well, what what the fuck is that? I'm not going to be in my own brother's wedding? What are you talking about? I just said, Sean, 
This isn't to hurt you. And this isn't just about you. And I felt bad saying it, but I did say, we're looking at it like, are you even going to be on this planet? And he just got real quiet and didn't say anything for a while. And I said, you know, this is what we live with every day. Is today the day Sean's going to die? Is it going to be in a month? Two weeks? What? It's a guessing game for us all the time. Up and down. The next day, despondent and carrying all of his belongings in a pair of garbage bags, Sean Sinisi walked out of the Alpha House. He was telling me about what he was doing and that those were definitely hallucinations and he was using the crystal meth. And she said that he wasn't really making any sense. He was, he was kept staring out the window and saying, they're coming for me. And did you bring them here and all that stuff. So I think she was worried about him having a bad experience on it. She didn't even know what to think. I can still picture him sprawled out on the bed. He had a t-shirt on. He was just so out of it. And then he started whipping stuff around when she kept telling him to get up and let's go, let's go. Yeah, I, I told her, I said, it really opened my eyes. I, I just I just could not believe the shape he was in. Don't you want to be around for everything after this wedding? I don't even know how, like, how, how am I supposed to bury you? I don't have money put back for that. Is that what you want us to do? You want us to bury our child? He just shot me a look. He just said, I'm going to be fine. I've been doing this for nine years and I'm still here. I'm going to be fine. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, in partnership with Penn Live and Meadowlark Media. Additional writing was done by Carl Scott at Meadowlark Media. We could not have done this project without funding from the Fund for Investigative Journalism and the Pulitzer Center. Our associate producers are Tori Whitten, Sarah Ruberg, and Ethan Schreier. Additional reporting was done by Charlie Thompson, Aaron Kasinitz, and Andrea Keckley. The executive producers are Kate Barron, Burke Noel, and Teresa Bonner for PenLive, and Carl Scott for Meadowlark Media. The Mayor of Maple Avenue was edited by James Sullivan and Gabriel Rojas at WUFT in Gainesville, Florida, by Jake Gloth at Cedar Production, Martin Boutros at Penn Studios, and Stephen Smith at Meadowlark Media. Sound design was done by Jesse Pearlstein, Alexander Ritchie, Martin Boutros, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our mixing and mastering engineer was Robin Wise. Our theme music and much of the score was composed by Pete Redman, with additional music by Alexander Ritchie, Jesse Pearlstein, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our team also includes production assistants Megan Lavie-Heaton, Joe Hermit, Sarah Tantawi, photographer Sean Simmers, and consultants John Hammontree and Neville Elder. Our legal counsel is Richard Bernstein. The podcast cover art was designed by Andy Ross. 
All of the voiceovers you hear in this series are read directly from original documents, such as medical records, text messages, newspaper clips, and other documents made available to us by the Sinisi family and their attorneys at the law firm of Spencer Custer. The part of Sean Sinisi is voiced by James Sullivan. To see extras like slideshows, interactive spaces, and written transcripts, visit our website at www.themayorofmapleavenue.com.